0: Welcome to an all new episode of Outside the Tank. I'm Tom and we're here with Junia of Brazzy Bites season seven, episode nine, air date of November 20th, 2015. Goes into the tank asking $200,000 for 10% of her company. This is Brazilian bread. The sharks loved it. They said it was delicious. They said it was fantastic. Um, Four different flavors. They use gluten-free flour, 120 calories for three pieces. Um, They're in over 700 grocery stores, uh, $200,000 of debt on the company. Revenue went from 60,000 to 200,000 to 600,000 and uh, around a million dollars. So company's growing, doing great. Sharks love the product. Lori ends up uh, doing a deal, 16.5% of the company for $200,000. So we're going to talk about scaling this business and how wonderful the product is, and where the idea came from. And afterwards, we'll talk about some of the great lessons we learned from this entrepreneur. Enjoy. All right, we are here with Junia, and first of all, welcome to Outside the Tank. We're we're so excited to have you here.
1: Thank you so much. I'm
0: excited to be with you guys today. You know there. I'm really excited about this because I feel like there's going to be a great story of you as an entrepreneur and how the business got started. Um, I want to start at the beginning because uh, a lot of this you, you didn't cover, at least on the part that made air. So give us the story of how you became an entrepreneur, how you came up for the, with this idea and how you got it started as a business.
1: So I started Brazi Bites in 2010. So it's, you know, it's going to be about 11 years here this summer. Um, and, you know, for the, for the listeners who are just coming in, Brazi Bites is a food company. And we're frozen foods company. We went on Shark Tank to pitch our food business and to try to grow and to get exposure. But I started the company because I grew up in Brazil. And there was this delicious product that I grew up eating that was part of my culture that was everywhere in Brazil that was not available here. Um, And it's called Pão de Queijo, which means cheese bread. It's a staple. It's everywhere. Think like chips are here in the U.S. So I had moved here to the U.S. I, I, I saw kind of an opportunity and a gap in the marketplace. There was a few signs in the market that were signaling that there could be a a place for this product in the US. For example, um, Americans that would travel to Brazil at that time, there were the World Cup took place kind of in the beginning of that, that time when I was starting the business, and Americans fell in love with the cheese bread. It was their favorite thing. We had friends that would go, you know, went to our wedding in Brazil, and it was like their favorite thing is the cheese bread. And the cheese bread happens to be naturally gluten free. We noticed in the U.S. this growing trend for better for you gluten-free products so all of those things combined I had the idea to bring this product to market to the U.S. in a way that was delicious it was convenient it was better for you for those who don't know that term it's kind of a food industry term that means that it's natural not made with preservatives no junk right when we say better for you and and so had this idea and went about learning the food industry from scratch you know, how literally was one of those stories, like I did not have experience in the food industry. I was a civil engineer, actually, before I started the food company. So completely left that career um, with this dream of starting this product. And, you know, back then in 2010, I, I started the company with my husband, Cameron, who was on Shark Tank with me. So we're both co-founders and we were just like really dreamers, you know, entrepreneurs, and people would look at, "Are you sure you want to go in the food industry?" You know, some of the most competitive industries out there. Like, yeah, that just sounds like a terrible idea. It's not going to work. And we were like, you know, this product, there's something here, and we want to give it a go. So that was the beginning of it all, and it's been, you know, an awesome journey and a ride the last eleven years.
0: So how old were you when you moved here and what prompted that move? And then my third part of that question is how, how did that move go for you?
1: I moved to the US after I graduated from college for personal reasons. It was for my husband actually unrelated to career. We, we met during college, we were dating and I graduated in civil engineering and we just decided okay Does he move to Brazil or do I move to the U.S.? It was one of those decision moments in in life. So I ended up moving to Portland, Oregon, where he he was living at the time. And we live, you know, today we're based in Portland and our lives is here. So that's how I ended up here. And I had just graduated from civil engineering. So, you know, made sense to get a job in my field, got a job in my field and began a career as a project engineer here in Portland, working for a contractor. And I was really young, you know, I was in my early 20s, when I moved here, I right out of college. And by the time I made the shift, and decided to uh, start Browse bites and switch careers and jump into the food industry, um, it had been about eight years, so I was in my late 20s then, I was in my late 20s, which, frankly, like, if I look back, it was perfect time, because you know, you can always look back in your career and your history and think, like, "Wow, like I was never meant to be an engineer." You know, that 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 career and that job was never right for me. But I learned so much, and I brought so many insights from that career and all my learnings in my early twenties to run the company successfully that I run today.
2: So you know, it all
1: kind of makes sense in the end.
2: Did you have, I'm curious, did you have uh, any uh, relatives or close friends that were entrepreneurs um, that inspired you to make the jump? Or were you, uh, were you really just kind of taking that risk independently uh, of any other mentorship and input?
1: I think like if I look back, I did not have a lot of friends or even relatives that were successful entrepreneurs that were inspirational. But if I look back at my family's history, it kind of skipped a generation. Like my grandfather was an entrepreneur in Brazil back in his time and was very successful. I was really young. I didn't get to experience the day-to-day of that. Then my my father and his, his siblings kind of played safe a little bit more. So it kind of skipped that generation. Then when it came to my my sort of the next layer, me and my siblings, we seemed to be a little bit more like call it I don't know. Like more like <laughs> we will we will keep keep like hustling and working hard and and, and kind of living up to our potential. We just kind of had this drive. But um I think one thing that is kind of like maybe some of some of the listeners here might connect with that my husband and I have in common that's unrelated to families that we come from divorced parents. So we come from divorced parents that sort of like shook the boat a little bit financially when we were teenagers. And so we experienced a little bit of abundance than a lot of the opposite, you know? And so when we were like, we graduated from college or we weren't working age, we kind of were coming off of the tail end of kind of feeling like there wasn't enough and then, and then the financial future is in our own hands. I think we had that sort of like internal drive that our financial future and what our future looks like are in our own hands and it's never, nothing's gonna be given to us. We do come with that mentality. Like internally. And I think that's a driver for an entrepreneur. Because you have to like feel that way all the time, right? It's like, I can make my own future. My own future depends on me. Nobody's going to come and hand me anything.
0: When you first started the business, you know, obviously it, it you know, it grew exponentially year over year. Um, but early on, what were some big mistakes or Uh, challenges that you had uh, as you were trying to develop this product, create a package good that was frozen in grocery stores, because it's really hard to do that stuff, as you know. But, you know, what were some of those challenges and and maybe even mistakes that you made that the entrepreneurs listening to this can learn from?
1: So you mentioned, like, the, the company grew exponentially. I have to say that it actually did not. If you look at 10 years, so we have 10 full years in business. The first five years, we barely grew. If you look at a revenue graph that we share actually internally and even with our grocery buyers and to just tell the story of our brand from uh, 2010 to 2015, there is barely any revenue. Like it's flat. And then we like go on Shark Tank and other things were happening. We're going to get into that pretty soon here. And then it blows up and it goes exponentially, right? It just totally shifts the growth. But what happened during those first five years, it was a lot of learning. Not only were we coming into brand new in the food industry, I wouldn't say that was kind of the biggest learning because we were fast learners. But to grow a product for the first time as a single entrepreneur without being backed by call a larger fund or you know now I know so much more but like a larger fund or a larger corporation you have to go retailer by retailer you have to be knocking on doors you have to build demand so in the food industry when you get a product on shelf in a grocery store not only it was like like hurdle number one you get placement and everybody celebrates that like on Shark Tank so much of us go and say Hey, I have a PO from Walmart. I have a PO from Costco. You know, that's a moment for the entrepreneur. That's the first hurdle. The second one is to drive enough demand so you can sell through that product fast enough to stay on shelf. And so during during those first five years, it was a huge hustle because not only like we were learning that piece, it's like, oh man, like it's already hard enough to get our placement in the freezer of the store. Now we have to, like create demand in this market and make sure that we move product fast. And grocery industry is highly competitive, right? There's so many products. Everybody's fighting for what's at home in your pantry. And so that was really hard. Um, we had to kind of really grow carefully. You know, we, were, we started in Oregon and we went to the state of Washington and we started getting some distribution in Arizona, California, and kind of growing the West Coast. And as we were growing, we were just scrambling to drive demand, to rebrand the product fast enough to meet, you know, what the consumers were telling us, to demo the product on the floor of grocery stores, to do local events, to get the message out. Um, that was tough, you know. So we were everywhere. We would work nonstop. Um, for those first five years, we worked almost seven days a week because we would make the product, and then we were not making the product. During the week, we were, um, you know, doing admin and sales stuff like from the computer. And then when during the weekend, we would shift gears and go to the grocery stores. And then we would be sampling, sampling, sampling. And then we started doing that and traveling and doing that in other cities. So then, you know, stuff became pretty intense. And we did all of that without paying ourselves for four years. You guys probably have probably heard that from others, too scale food industry to create a profitable brand that's scalable takes time and it takes a significant amount of distribution with significant demand from your goods so it is it's it's you know it's it's a great industry um i love it a ton but it is not an easy one to make it through
0: so you're not making money for four years you're working seven days a week your business partner is also your significant other, which doesn't make it any easier, I'm sure. <laughs> so yeah. so, so, what's going through your mind at the midpoint of that? Are you thinking about quitting? Are you scared? Are you confident? Do you believe in the product enough to get you through it? How, how do you get some sleep at night, do it again, and think that there's a light at the end of the tunnel?
1: So... We kind of made some strategic moves in our, in our sort of like household to keep a roof over our head during those times. Cause you're like, how did you even do that? Right? So my co-founder and husband Cameron kept his job and worked during the day. During that time, I had left my job to focus on Browse bites full time in the beginning. So I was already full time, full time. He was doing evenings and, and weekends and, and nights. So, but it, so we, we kind of made that commitment, okay, we, we can pay our bills, we can keep our house and some basic things. And then it becomes the other question that you had, like, how do you even keep that dry, right? Because it's like a long time, four years, almost five years. When I go back and look at it, I feel like it was just latching on all of the micro wins that the brand was having. So there's a lot of hardship and a lot of rejection, like most entrepreneurs in the beginning. But then there was a lot of like micro wins and signals in the marketplace that this idea and this brand that we were putting out in front of people had something there. So we would always think about like this, you know, this is really hard, you know, hardcore stuff. And physically demanding and emotionally demanding, financially demanding, there's no guarantee that you're gonna make it through. But we would, the biggest thing was like when we were sampling, like during those sampling events, we were the busiest booth at a trade show, we were the busiest booth at a store. When we were sampling with people, they were buying everything that we had on the shelf. So we're like, there's something here. But then we realized, if we don't get this cover in a big way, sooner than later, we're not going to be able to pull through this process of scaling and getting big enough and creating viability. But it was those things, you know, in the midst of all of this, let's, you know, let's say we would do a trade show. And then, you know, before we went on Shark Tank, like was during that mid period there, like 2013, like. Sprouts, Farmer's Market Buyer, I don't know if you guys are familiar with Sprouts, Arizona-based grocery, like amazing grocery store for Better For You brands and emerging brands. They saw us at a trade show, they ate it and they are like, oh my God, like I have to have this in my store. 300 stores, you know, across the whole Southwest and huge win. like put us in front of people in a big way. So things like that, right? I started doing events and start getting discovered and every like, Honestly, every two weeks, there was a little glimpse that there was a potential. So that kept us going because we're like, we are just, we're just we're making progress here. But how, how far can we go? Which leads us to 2015. That's when we went on Shark Tank. But that's that feeling that started with that year. It's like, how much further can we go?
0: So then how did you get on the show and tell us about that experience and what transpired immediately following it?
1: So I'll tell you about the beginning of that year because it's important to illustrate. So at that point, Cameron is working his other job and he's keeping our home like secure, like roof of our head, foot on the table. We realized, hey, this company is growing. We've got Sprouts now. We had you know, moved operations. We had raised some money with angels. Thing is moving. And we were kind of progressing well into the light of kind of almost a million dollars in sales. We weren't about almost a thousand points of distribution nationwide. So, you know, we made some solid progress here. We had multiple regions of Whole Foods. We have some Kroger divisions. Then I was like, we need more people working in this company. I can't be doing this by myself. You know, this is crazy. It's like, who is going to work for as cheap as a founder? No one. Like, I can't hire anyone on the street to work as much as a founder. So Cameron, hey, it's time for you to leave your job. And you're going to come and work full time for this brand. But, you know, we're going to take all of our safety net and we're going to see what happens. So at the end of 2015, we say, OK, Cameron, leaves your- we're going to go all in. Like we had gone all in for four years prior, but like really, really all in. Um, and, and, we, and we kind of did the math and we had about eight months to live. And like, we have about eight months to do something big, you know, bring on an investor, have a massive appearance that would drive demand, what have you. So we brought that energy to the beginning of the year. And and then it's that energy like it's 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 this or it's not, you know, it's it's the, it's gonna be the end. And and so the energy like we we brought even more energy and more focus for the business on what was working and what the future would look like with both of us working full time. We decided then a p- component of that is We applied to go on Shark Tank. We did every single trade show that we could. We started traveling even more. We started really selling it in a big way to retailers, to consumers, just putting all out there. Cause we're like, if this year doesn't make it, it's probably not gonna make it. So Shark Tank was, you know, we loved the show. um, Obviously as an entrepreneur and here in Portland, I had actually known a few people that had gone on, on the tank prior. And, you know, we're friends with them in the, in the food community here. Um, we've got, you know, um, Wild Friends Nut Butter, who was one of the super yep. early, like, right? Shark Tank, like, early, early days. If you watch that, it feels like it's the 90s now. <laughs> it's like the looks <laughs> old. Um, Heidi Ho was another um, food company here from Oregon. And our community here is pretty tight and small and supportive, so we knew each other like, man, You know, being on Shark Tank really gave you a lot of exposure. And so we felt like it would be great for our brand. And we were raising money. So it was like, perfect. And we also knew that the producers from this show, from talking to, you know, our peer entrepreneurs and watching the show, we knew that they liked our profile, meaning family-owned, husband and wife, food products, something from another country like he had all the components that made sense for the show
0: and so you air and then what happens what happens to sales what happens to the business what do the next couple of days and months look like for you
1: so we air in right before Thanksgiving of 2015 and we I have to say this because it's the perfect time of year for Brazzly Bites. You know, people are at home. They're closed up in there, like they're watching TV. In 2015, the listeners have to remember this. Streaming was not a thing. I know it seems crazy because it was not that long ago. But everything on Shark Tank happened the night of. While nowadays, it's much more spread out over the next, you know, few weeks with DVR and streaming and all that good stuff, right? So we air on the show And everything happens pretty fast. Uh, We go and we record it. We go down to LA, we record. And then like two months later, we get the notice that it's airing. And it airs at the perfect time of the year with just awesome, like storytelling of our brands. And, you know, the sharks love the products like we thought they would. And they they, they took a bite and they said, I can't believe this is gluten-free. This is so delicious. Yeah they said all the things that we tell people like and we hear from people and we were hoping they would say that viewership for for our episode was around 9 million people so 9 million people watched the show it was incredible they fell in love with the brand by trusting the sharks and just flocked to grocery stores everywhere in the country to buy our product. so what followed after that was really a frenzy on the consumer side, unlike I have, haven't I had have never seen before, and honestly, unlike I had, I haven't seen since that happened, because it's almost like impossible to replicate in real life, even with paid media. But people heard that. I always like tell this story to people, and they like have a hard time explaining, understanding this because. When you go on Shark Tank and you have a product that's online, it's very easy to explain why you sold $2 million that night. People are watching TV and they're on their phone and they bought you. I do that all the time as a viewer, right? I'm buying something that I'm watching or I'm checking out the company. But what happened to us was incredible because people actually went to bed, woke up the next day, got in their cars, drove to the nearest grocery store that we had said the name during the show. And bought everything they had. So we it was a total frenzy that for four months every product that hit the shelf would get bought immediately. And people developed this sense that there's not enough. So when normally a purchase behavior is one bag, you know, a week, or somebody's just adding a bag of bread, people are buying 10. They were buying the whole freeze because they're like, I don't know when it's coming back. <laughs> Last time I was here was out of stock. They're freaking out. So the velocities were Crazy through the people
2: were, people were hoarding crazy bites.
1: <laughs> 100%. So what does that look like in numbers? The year before we went on Shark Tank, we did a little bit over a million dollars. I mentioned we were kind of on track to do like close to a million. And then we kind of tipped that over. The next year, we did $8.5 million in revenue. Wow. And we would have done more, by the way but we didn't have enough capacity, right? It was just like all of the capacity that you can't produce because food products are not that easy. You have to make, you have to buy the ingredients, you have to add labor, there's distribution network, there's, it's perishable. It's not like you can produce like $8 million like that, you know, but we were well on our way on scaling the brand and so not only that, like we got distribution in like thousands of stores. Consumers asked for us everywhere. We got buyers. it flipped the way the company operated. It, like, it was life changing. Yeah. Instead of me going and begging a buyer for placement, I'm not begging, but like, you know, I'm coming in as this entrepreneur It's an idea hey, give me a place in your freezer set. The buyers were calling me. They were saying, tell me how I can get your product here. And so it was totally life-changing. It was awesome. So that shift in revenue from one, you know, one and change to 8.5, then we did 13 million the next year. It just kept, you know, it it just, it accelerated. It made us America's third fastest growing food company, according to Inc. magazine. It just like, that's the, the speed of the growth that we experienced during that time because of that exposure.
0: So, you're happy you went on the show?
1: Couldn't be happier.
0: <laughs> and, couldn't uh,
1: be happier.
0: Junia,
2: you mentioned that there is a frenzy, a feeding frenzy for the product in Whole Foods and Sprouts and all the great stores you're in. There was also a feeding frenzy of offers during the show, and there was an a offer that you accepted um, eventually from Lori. There was a lot of back and forth, but Uh, What can you tell us about uh, that offer and that deal?
1: So we did get multiple offers of the show, which was really exciting. And, um, you know, not only from the offer standpoint, because we were raising money, but, you know, if you see the brands that are more successful post-appearance on Shark Tank, brands that got offered, They just tend to be more successful, even if the deals don't close because it just has that, you know, the the consumer just feel like, wow, a shark wants to invest. This product must be worth worthy of, you know, of my purchase or me checking it out. So we just felt like that that component was pretty important. And so we were very happy to do that. Um, We had an offer from Lori. We had an offer from Mr. Wonderful and an offer from Damon. They were not too far from each other. In terms of dollar. But before going to the show, we did, we you know, we liked Lori and we felt like she could, you know, support the brand and help the brand. So during the episode, we, we kept kind of trying try, try to drive towards her. Um, and we also really liked Mark. Uh, Mark is, um, he follows a gluten free diet. So we felt like he, perhaps he could connect with that piece of the brand and like that. And Mark did like the product a lot, but didn't make an offer you know he's very I call it like moody you know if he's like sometimes he'll give an offer to something and then the next day he will like reject a, an offer on something that's potentially better and bigger for a reason that the, you know it's just like he's kind of somewhat inconsistent with his um with his investments and the reasons why he would invest but um Anyway, so he didn't make an offer, but the other three did. And so we were focused on them and ultimately walked away from the show with, you know, a handshake from Lori and um, and attempted to close a deal, you know, after the show and went through the process.
2: Well, it was certainly interesting that uh, there was some, uh, there was a little bit of pullback when they learned that you had transitioned out of production uh, and that partner had 50% of the company they had to it, it appeared to the to us that they had to process that And in retrospect uh, was that uh, a great move It sounds like it may have been a great and really the necessary move for you at the time.
1: Yeah, they definitely took pause at that you know um, to acknowledge that. That reality because, and those are the things that the sharks are looking for. What's the ownership? Why did you do certain things? And, and, and like who's running the business? But that deal was done before we applied to go on Shark Tank. And it was, you know, as part of where, where the brand was during that time, we were looking for investments. We were looking to scale manufacturing. We were looking to get out of our own manufacturing. We, we, I mentioned briefly that we used to run our own production and have our own employees. And we realized that we couldn't scale the brand that way. So we were looking for a solution for that before we went on the show and we're able to do a deal with another group um, that have a lot of experience in the food industry that could help us meet that need with some investment. So it's not a deal that we look back with regret, you know, and, and like we didn't, when you planning to go on the show, like nobody can see into the future, we didn't know that. I'm not saying I would have done that deal if I had I known I was going to go on Shark Tank, you know, four months later and just 10x the revenue of this brand. Um, but you know, you just do the best you can at that moment in time with the information you have on hand.
0: Absolutely. Looking into the future. What's the vision for the company? What are you looking to accomplish, you know, over the coming years?
1: So we're really excited about uh, the future of Brazil Bites. And we've come a long way since 2015. So, you know, we talked about the exponential growth and like really expanding right after the show. We also like restructured the business in 2018 and brought um, more investment and um, start building a bigger team to realize that we were growing so much, we had this amazing product, but we didn't have the right people behind it to continue to scale at that level. So we did a ton of restructuring, have a great team in place, and are creating a Latin foods platform that's better for you, that's naturally gluten-free. That's a much bigger player in the freezer section, and who knows in the future, outside of the freezers, you know, in grocery stores. And the company is... um, on track to do $30 million in revenue this year. So it's progressing quite nicely and well. And we just keep building on each year. We keep building on the lessons, building on the products, you know, building on our consumer base. But we're very thoughtful. I mean, we're thoughtful about the way we run these brands. You know, you could could get bigger faster, but we feel like we want to be, Careful. We want to be thoughtful. We don't want to launch too many products and burn too many cash. We like a solid pace of growth. Build on, um, you know, a good foundation.
2: Well, you're you're absolutely killing it. Uh, Thirty million. That's so great to hear. We're so happy for that success because obviously it's a great product. It's it's good for people. Uh, it's a tasty product. I've actually uh, had some. Uh, and I wasn't aware you were in Sprouts. I'm going to go down and, and Whole Foods. We have those here in Arizona, so now I know where to get them. Uh, it, uh, I'm curious, with personnel, uh, with forming a team and restructuring, what can you share with us that uh, entrepreneurs listing could learn about some of the things that were uncovered to you about getting the right people in place?
1: So what, what we realized after sort of like maybe like two or three years after going on Sharp Tank, we had grown in revenue dramatic. We launched in thousands of stores. We had, you know, huge demand for our products, but we kind of realized the writing was on the wall. We're like, you know, we looked inward and we're like, we can't, we're not going to be able to grow much further if you don't bring the right people. We didn't feel like, so we went, went about like, how do we do that? How do we go build a team? We're first-time entrepreneurs. What is needed? And so we went about, you know, meeting with a lot of people, did a restructuring, refine, like re- refinance the brand through private equity, and just came out of the deal with sort of like a new brand and a new vision, where us founders, we're still equity holders, we still have involved, we're leaders in the business. But we were able to bring high caliber people to look at what does this company need and where it's an obvious place to add talent, you know, so things like, you know, the right salespeople to cover the right channels in the right territory, the right accounting systems in place, the right operating systems in place, you start adding, you know, thousands of stores and distribution chains, like how are you managing that, you know, (laughs)
0: You got to get out of
1: Excel spreadsheets at some point and, and put systems in place. Those things require investment, they're expensive, and there's a sweet spot for when to make that jump. You don't want to go too early because then you're spending so much for something you really don't need. And so things that we added for, uh, in our business that were, you know, really, really important, um, really building that sales team um, in a big way. Previously was just me primarily calling on everyone with two very young sales staff and we realized that's not going to work you know there's multiple channels multiple ways to communicate spread too thin so we brought in multiple salespeople. we brought in support on finance side we didn't have anyone we had like a bookkeeper we were like a 13 million dollar company with a bookkeeper coming once a week (laughs) It just just, was just, it was like that, you know, we needed a lot of like foundational building. Um, We eventually brought in a CEO, which was wonderful. So I was the company CEO for the whole time and Cameron was the COO. And I felt like I wanted to really focus on the marketing side and my founder voice and the products and building the brand. That I could use the support, so we brought in a new CEO who has been great and works seamless with the both of us. Doesn't? It's not always the case, but ours is is really uh, works out well. Um, and that that's kind of a big move, you know. If you're like a founder and CEO, you're like, I'm gonna bring somebody in to take that role. But I just I couldn't do both. I couldn't do my you know my marketing things and my role as a founder. Um, I wouldn't be able to do this interview with you today. Because the job is just different. You know, it requires different, um, you know, different skill set and, and so on and so forth. So we, we keep building the team. And that's been a game changer. That's been a game changer. Because we all have blind spots, right? And having more talent around you is really helpful. But you're also trying to balance, like, am I, am I bringing too many people? Am I too top heavy? Do I have... You know, a payroll that does not match the revenue that I'm bringing to the business. So I think that entrepreneurs have to look at all those things and find balance. Before we did this deal with private equity and restructure the business, we were erring on the side of being too lean. And I don't look back with regret so much, but I think if, if, like if I were to start another business, we were moving really fast, and even the thought of building a team was like, I don't have time for this. I am running this thing, right? Because you have to stop and like strategize. Who am I going to building? What am I going to do with like what is there's a bunch so many components and complexities that come with growing your team as well. Um, but you know, it, if I if I I, I was saying if I look back. We were running to lean and we were hiring everybody super junior. And what happens with that is that you get them for a the good value, but that catches up with you because after a while, just everybody needs you, everybody needs you. And then the whole thing doesn't move forward. So I really saw a difference when we actually brought, you know, a couple leadership folks that could bring those, those high level conversations to the table.
2: It takes a uh, really, really aware uh, and talented and really, I would say a brilliant uh, entrepreneur like yourself to be able to recognize those blind spots you talked about. Often we don't, we just ignore them and hope they'll go away, but that catches up with you. You have to surround yourself with really, really top talent. And it sounds like you've done
1: that. Absolutely. It's, it's been a huge difference. I would say the company would not, the company would probably would have gotten stuck at sort of like maybe the 15 to 20 million dollar in revenue and now it's well positioned for you know for growth for future for making an impact for creating great new products that deliver solutions to consumers and um and it's because of the team you know and all of us together driving it forward
0: well, we, we so appreciate you being here. It's, it's such an awesome story. There's a ton of, we take notes and we share them on the post game. There's so many, <laughs> so many good lessons here. Uh, last question is, you know, and I, I know there's a lot of places, but how can people find where to buy the product and then how can they follow you guys on social media?
1: Awesome, guys. It's been so fun talking to you today. So to find Brandy Bytes, the easiest way to go is just go to braziabytes.com we have a store locator there and links to everywhere. You can find us near you. We're in about 15,000 stores nationwide. So high likelihood that there's a store in your neighborhood that carries browser Bites in the freezer section. And there's, we're on Amazon, we're on our website. You can find everything about us on, on our website.
2: I think, you know, I think I might be Brazilian because I love bread and I love cheese.
1: <laughs> I might be
2: I'm you Italian, might. but I might be Brazilian. <laughs> Is there any food you don't like? No, I like <laughs> all food, but I especially like bread and cheese. And when you put those two together, what a great combination.
1: It's got your name all over it. I love
0: it. <laughs> well thank you. So, thank you so much for joining us. You're you're an awesome entrepreneur. We we so appreciate everything you shared and uh i'm looking forward to trying it and you're looking forward to having it again yeah i
2: i had it at a dinner party one night i said what is this and then i realized uh i made the connection when i realized we were going to have the the honor of interviewing you so thank you for
0: being with us junia
1: thank you so much
0: all right we're back and what what an awesome interview and i mean some big important lessons here um First of all, cherishing the micro wins and signals along the way. You know, we we have to just step back sometimes and recognize the progress we're making, the wins we're having. They may feel like they're happening slower. They may feel like they're smaller than we want them to be. But wins are wins, progress is progress. Um, You have talked a lot about bigger vision and, you know, the growth that they're having and seeing things bigger. And, you know, the importance of being willing to change people when you change that vision, understanding different people need to be in place to accomplish, you know, a bigger difference. And running a $5 million company is different than running a $30 million company. Um, You know, stop using Excel and integrate systems, right? (laughs) Um, And, you know, at a $13 million company, still using a bookkeeper that came in once a week. That ain't good can't do that, right? Um, Last thing was, I thought this is a great quote, you know, we all have blind spots. It's true. We all have blind spots as entrepreneurs. And so, you know, a lot of this game is about recognizing what am I not good at? What am I missing? Uh, Asking people, what do you think I'm missing? Or what should I be thinking about that I'm not? Or what's going to be coming up that's going to be a problem that I need to anticipate? So we all have current blind spots, future blind spots. But they're blind spots. So we got to look for them and find them and uncover them or else they can really hurt us. And I thought that was a great lesson too. So awesome entrepreneur, absolutely kicking butt, great interview, really enjoyed it. And as always, we'll see you next week on an all new episode of Outside the Tank.